and a very happy new year to you all. If you don't know already, my name is David Oakes and this is the Trees A Crowd podcast and indeed the first Trees A Crowd podcast of 2023. So following a season stuffed with Stalin, what better for you than a podcast obsessed with pollen? Yes, this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Here, I get to speak to those wonderful people who are dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. Now, back in the sweltering summer of 2022, I set off to meet this month's guest in a wildflower meadow in the Conwy Valley, right on the northernmost point of Wales. Not Welsh, rather an Englishman, but a man who has had, and indeed is having, a lasting impact upon how we view and protect botany across all of Great Britain and Ireland. He has written books, presented a television programme for Channel 4, appeared on the likes of BBC's Countryfile and Springwatch, and all whilst based at the wild plant conservation charity Plant Life. But prior to that, he spent six years manifesting the groundbreaking new atlas of the British and Irish flora, collating nine million records to map over 4,000 species of plants in the wild. Without it, we wouldn't know what plants we have here, or indeed what plants we had here. Indeed, more on that to follow. And what with the new, new atlas primed to arrive this spring, what better time to explore our nation's wildflowers than now? So, without further ado, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Dr Trevor Dines, his own wildflower meadow, and his cows. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw, when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. So who are we looking at? Who are these people? So we've got... So oh, hello. So this is Nell. And hello, she Nell. is our three-year-old. And this is her calf just coming up behind us. That's Mally. Mel's very curious. Nell is the is the, the probably the tamest of them all. Hello. Because she grew up with us. So uh, and she's absolutely lovely. You should probably say for the record what they are. They're not so actually people. <laughs> I'm talking as if they are. These are, <laughs> these are our little... Well, you don't have a herd of Highland cattle, you have a fold of Highland cattle. So this is our little little fold of Highland cattle. And it's a fold of four at the moment. A fold of four at the moment, but the, uh, the one that's coming up at the rear, struggling in the heat and looking a little bit like a barrel, that's uh, Caddy, and she is heavily pregnant, so uh, we're expecting her to uh, produce her little calf at any, at any moment. So this is the daughter. Nell is the daughter of Caddy. So we've got mother, daughter, and then grand, grandchild, little one coming up there. So Mally was born in, in June, and she's quite unusual. You can see the white spot on the side of her, yeah, so that's gorgeous. quite unusual for a, a highland cow to have different coloured coloured spots. But we, uh, was she born with that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They're just lovely little things. She's just had a feed of milk, that's why she's got a wet muzzle. <laughs> There you go. That's what, very. They, want, they, want they knew they're on they're on an audio format. So, <laughs> so this one, she wants to give birth any day soon. So this is Caddy. Hey, Caddy. And she's slightly grumpy because it's too hot and she needs to get rid of. If this I car, was just so, uh, about to have a baby yeah, and a baby that weighed half a ton, then yeah, I'd be <laughs> very grumpy in this heat. Absolutely, but she's good, and uh, they're just lovely. You can see how docile they are. Yeah. And yeah, they're really popular with um 
smallholders because yeah we just leave them out in the field all year round basically we don't have to bring them in in the winter you know they just they'll eat anything they're very very good foragers especially on on, yeah, on these wildflower meadows they'll, uh-huh. they'll just eat everything and uh, they're just lovely docile inquisitive little things people are scared of the horns well they're massive and you've got to be a little wary yeah a little bit of respect there one of my questions was going to be because we're up in the Conwy Valley is there not a Welsh breed that you should have looked into rather than <laughs> we, getting some Highland cattle? Well, my second favourite cow, <laughs> breed of cow, is the... Is the is how the, long uh, is this list of favourite <laughs> cows? <laughs> how long have we got? <laughs> is um, uh, the Welsh Blacks, and Welsh Blacks are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, we've got some Welsh Blacks, or our neighbour has at the top of the top of the lane there, and they are beautiful. But these are a small, docile, easy, the easiest of the breeds to look sure. after and giving birth is very very easy as well you don't normally have many problems with them uh, so uh, so we decided to go with these and the guy that the seed came from for our meadow he works for the national trust okay he lives down the valley and he's got a herd of, of highland so that's where the so relationship it's a very started developing link. yeah that's right and then, so, so they've got some cousins on the other they've side got of the cousins down the valley they've got about 20 or so uh, at the moment and they use them for conservation grazing so uh, okay. yeah it's very much very much the, the sort of aim of, of, of keeping them I had a lovely time up on the Yorkshire Rings with some Irish Dexters oh. that were used to look after the water meadows over there. How were they? Because they can be slightly... Grumpy. Yes. <laughs> Grumpies <laughs> and on their own and not inquisitive. Yeah. They had some Exmoor ponies to keep them company just right. to sort of chill them out a bit, but they were wonderful. <laughs> yeah, Dexters. A friend of ours down the valley had Dexters. He wanted to do a wildflower meadow and uh, he sort of said, um, mm. yes, they were slightly mad, <laughs> slightly jumping around all, all the time difficult to handle so uh, yeah, these are these are lovely by comparison but it is that thing i think a lot of people don't realize that to sort of look after a lot of what some people think of as natural habitats in the uk you do need to have a grazing species whether it's cattle or or sheep or... absolutely oh yeah, the, yeah there's an old adage livestock make meadows and meadows make livestock and that's absolutely true the, the link there between you know our most species rich habitat wildflower meadows and this grazing livestock is absolutely fundamental and, mm-hmm. and it's something born of of many 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 generations of, of grazing these the, these pastures properly you know you go up to the yorkshire and you'll see these fabulous wildflower meadows up there each with their hay barns and, mm-hmm. and that's what it's all about is uh, providing for, for the livestock so we're looking back at about, I guess, 8,000 years ago when farming yeah. properly started yeah. in this country. Yeah. So do we say that wildflower meadows are an 8,000-year historical entity? <laughs> not, not, not fenced off like that <laughs> with water troughs and, and things like that. But what's really, I think what's really interesting about places like NEP and what NEP is doing with this grazing that's allowed to range around a landscape and open up pockets of landscape and open up patches that would have been more grassland Uh you know that's what i think the landscape would have would have looked like so you'd have had a very much a mixed forest next to scrubland next to more open grazed grasslands and that's the sort of landscape i imagine existed then we're talking Um, about sort of more open woodlands rather than more open woodland yeah dense less this that I think is pretty much a myth, you know, and it's been shown to be you know, a, a bit of a fantasy that there was this wild wood stretching from coast to coast. Sure. It was never like that. You know, any, any habitat where you've got free-ranging large herbivores will be patchy, it'll be mm-hmm. heterogeneous, it'll have, it'll have patches of open, patches of, of, of shade and patches of, of dense stuff. And what's exciting for me about NEP is that they're using, I think they're using English shorthorn cattle down there, yeah. but in the same sort of way, you know, they're allowing them to choose where they want to graze, they're allowing them to to move around 
and you end up you know, not only with a happier cow, uh, but fabulous mixture of habitats, and that's what it's all about. Mm. You know. Unfortunately, you know, I can't take down my fences and allow these beautiful <laughs> girls to wander into our neighbours' fields uh, and graze them and, and have that, that situation here. So, so we try and do what we can with sure. what we've got. You know, we've got two fields here, a small summer pasture that we're standing in with these cattle now. And then in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully within a few days, actually, we're going to cut the cut the meadow for hay, and then these girls can go down in, in there and feed to their heart's content. You know, I was watching your. You've got a, a short YouTube series about your your life creating and nurturing this meadow over the opening few years and I think you call it shutting up yes that's when right. you bring yeah. the cattle from the lower meadow yeah. where the wildflowers are into this top meadow where we that's stand right. now what's the equivalent when you release them again I don't think there is a time. Do you want to come up with one now on the spot? Sorry. Opening up. up. Release release it. I mean, what is absolutely joyous is to watch that that happen because Mm -hmm. they know that all of the you know, all of that is there. That tastes fabulous for that for them. Yeah, the the, the rich mix of of species in there is is, it's a gourmet smorgasbord for them. Uh, and as soon as you let them in, they, they come racing down this field with all intents to run and leap through the meadow get about two yards, stop, start eating, and then that's it for the day. They just slowly <laughs> move down and hardly get anywhere. And then they're like, oh, no, hang on, we're in this meadow. And then they, they do run around and, and enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, but the, you know, that, that's, that's part of it. You know. So if we look at this landscape around us, there's, there's, you know, there's other farms around, particularly on the other side of the valley there. Those fields get ploughed every sort of four or five years, mm-hmm. re-sown and reseeded. So you've got all of those those inputs there with carbon and, and cost and expenditure, you end up with then a, with with a sward that is basically ryegrass and clover, Italian rye, a perennial ryegrass and clover. You might need to define sward there. It's sward. So sward is, is is a grassy. So a lawn is a sward, a meadow is a sward. It's a it's a grass oh, yeah. um, community, a community of species that come together. That's mainly grass. Mm. Is what we call call a sward. But that sward is very species poor, so you've only got those two or three elements in it, two or three different species. And just as we wouldn't you know, bring up our children just eat, well, some you know, crisps and ice cream or something like that, you know. <laughs> but, you know, a varied diet is sure. what you want to give your, give your life. Well, I mean, I waited until I was in my 20s until I only had crisp and ice cream and I live off the stuff now, so that's How fine. How long until you ate mushrooms? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Olives are the things that sort of get people. But um, giving these, these cattle that species-rich diet, that means that we, we do not have to feed as much uh-huh. nutrient supplement. You know, we've had the vets out to these once. Okay. Uh, so these are feeding on things like birdfoot trefoil, which is so rich in tannins. Those tannins will be performing a, a worming um, sure. service for them. So you know, what I'm saying is, is that they are much happier, healthier cattle because they've got a varied diet. Well, their really coats look amazing for itself. They look they're, very I mean, they're, they're, they're far, a farmer yesterday put up on, on Twitter that he, he'd gone through exactly this uh, journey himself with, you know, in, in, on his farm, moving from that ryegrass clover pasture sure. to a species-rich ward, and he could see the benefits. And he, he just, you know, he, he said this, this is, you know, he wanted to get away from the, the, the rice and white bread <laughs> diet that they were having to this lovely mixed diet. I think a lot of people read that they're eating a nice organic uh, bit of beef that has been fed upon a nice pasture of meadow they think that it's sort of skipping around yeah, and, yeah, and eating yeah. all the wildflowers that yeah. we can see in the meadow down there but in actual fact it's just it's just the same yeah yeah, yeah. The same thing every grass, which day. has been fertilized and you know, yeah. you know cut for silage and and there's no wildlife in there at all so this is the difference between intensive grass and this um, extensive grass or species rich grassland which is you know the habitat that yeah. is the most threatened one in, in britain you know we all know the vigor 97 percent of these 
meadows have have been lost since uh, the 1940s. Yeah, which is astonishing. Yeah, that, that's when I started campaigning about meadows and trying to get meadows back into the headland uh, mm-hmm. headlines as being the most important habitat that we're losing. You'd say to you, a journalist, ninety-seven percent of these these meadows have been lost. Well, you know, if ninety-seven percent of our woodland had been lost, you know, the country would have been up in arms about yeah. it. But um, nobody ties themselves to the buttercups. <laughs> it's probably worth saying that these cattle. Are probably not going to be eaten, but they're here more as a that's right. yeah. as as yeah. pets yeah. and a mowing yeah. service. Yeah. yeah, they are, but they're, they're but, workers. But they're, they're they're workers. They're conservation grazers. But you know, if we expanded the herd, you know, that I'd be quite happy for that to happen. You know, if a if a cow is born to be sold as beef, then it's sold to be beef, and and and, and that you know that's fine for me. Should we find somebody to sit in the shade? Yeah, I was going to say, let's move into the shade. Either get burnt or I get too distracted by stroking these wonderful animals. But it's so lovely, isn't it? They're just coming up and uh, enjoying our company. And as am I enjoying theirs. (laughs) Well, you can actually do cattle meditation and just... (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You can do everything these days. Just spend time with these. When people get bored of wildflower meadows, there (laughs) you you go, there's your second avenue of employment. One one of the interesting things is, for me, this journey of creating a wildflower meadow, I hadn't quite appreciated how, coming from a farming background, owning livestock and and getting back to that side of things, that part of my, my, my past has been so enormously rewarding, almost more rewarding than the wildflower meadows itself because it opened up a whole new chapter for me in terms of the community of farming here, looking after livestock, um, yeah, and the, and the joy that they bring to people. It's, it's just absolutely fabulous. Well, let's go and sit down somewhere. In the cooler. shade, in the shade. Okay, so I probably, yeah, who are you? <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> who am I? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, Dr. Trevor Dines, and I'm a botanist and conservationist. But you didn't grow up in North Wales. No, grew up oh, in yeah. well. Uh, You're a Hampshire boy. Yeah, born in Northampton. Okay. Um, and then moved down to actually Wiltshire first for ten oh. years in Wiltshire, and then moved to another farm just outside Stockbridge in Hampshire. So, okay. Uh, Dad was a farm manager, so uh, that's why we moved around. What and, kind uh, of farm? It was very specialist in cereal production. And he produced seed crops for other farmers to grow. Okay. So, so he would have an inspector coming round every sort of couple of couple of months to make sure that the crops were absolutely pristine and weed-free. So he was using everything under the yeah, sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what did he think about that at the time? Well, it's interesting. You know, he he was getting he was getting a good price for those crops. It needed extra input, and, and, mm-hmm. and so so that was great. But I remember showing him, um, we were on the, on the chalk, this was a, you know, down in Hampshire, and you get a superb arable flora on the chalk, really rare species popping up, uh-huh. things like nightfly and catchfly and all these rare fumatories and things like that, uh, which captured my imagination. And I pointed out to him, I remember it one evening, I pointed out uh, a prickly poppy growing in, the, in one of the gateways uh, to the field. And this is a thing that's, I think, it's suffered about an 80% decline. It's one of our rarest, sure. rarest poppy species now. Um, beautiful little flower and it just sort of piqued his imagination and 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 I think he suddenly thought okay I'm a custodian of the land and this is what I do need to be looking after so soon after that he started doing unsprayed headlands and you know reducing the amount of herbicide and fertilizer that he was using Uh in parts of the field did Uh, that mean he had to change who he was selling his crop to no just there'd be a little bit less okay so he wouldn't crop those headlands and, and and wouldn't crop that and now 
all these years later, that farm is, is sort of one of the ones leading the way in terms of you know, bringing species yeah. back. Yeah, and okay. uh, they've, they've gone the whole hog, and yeah, they're looking at reintroducing some of the species on the headland. So it's really nice to have that full circle yeah. coming, coming, coming around. You know. How old were you when you pointed out the prickly poppy to your I was father? I was quite a precocious nature, so I think I was probably about... 14 or 15 something okay. like that so fairly young but uh yeah my interest in botany started well before that so yeah so was, if, uh, if if yeah. it started when you were 14 how did you get into it was it through just living in yeah in those I, th- I think i think you know there's always people are always worried about sort of encouraging people to become a botanist or become a naturalist <laughs> i think you're born it i think i think it's in you and i think as long as you've, you've got that opportunity to to experience some of those things when you're young sure then uh i think yeah you're you're born into this thing so i remember by the age of six or seven i was noting down the flowering dates of snowdrops in our local woodland and things when you were six or seven you were noting down the flowering dates of snowdrops not just snowdrops not just species but the particular okay now i wish i'd kept hold of those notebooks (laughs) do you have do you have to be a bit i'm trying to find a word that isn't anal do you you have to be a bit of a collector a bit of a fanatic to want to follow flowers absolutely absolutely yeah there are there are so many of them in the landscape and i think it attracts that sort of person that Uh likes to disappear into that world sure it's it's a world that that draws you in and you can start looking at different fumatory species and get into that detail that I'll be honest, it takes you away from the real world, yeah. probably, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah. It's also a world that isn't static. There's not a, a set limit to your discovery. We were talking about this inside, about how different plants flower at different times of the year. Some plants go dormant for a decade, so, like, what you're trying to comprehend and understand is something that you're never truly going to grasp the entirety and, of. And, and that's, that is the absolute beauty of it, and that's the thing that is so exciting. <laughs> Which it's, one was that? <laughs> that? That was Caddy. Hey, Caddy. She, she, wants, she wants more food. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what's so exciting about it, because it never stops. It always changes. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, I always describe it as being, uh, when I go out into the countryside, it's like going somebody else going to a party, mm-hmm. and you've got all these different characters and all these people entering the room, you're having conversations with them, different sort of interactions with people. That's what I get from botanising. You're going out into the countryside, countryside, and I'm meeting my friends, my family, familiar people, and then somebody new comes along, and you're like, hello, who are you? You're interesting. I've never seen you before. So it's it's exactly Or perhaps that the most exciting thing. Don't we know each other? You look very much like my <laughs> well, cousin. Exactly, oh, exactly. my word, you're not my cousin, but exactly, you look the spits of him. Exactly. I must document you and maybe take your genome. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. And that's what's exciting for me because, you know, even a piece of land that you know really, really well and you've been growing up with you know, yeah. all your life, you can suddenly find something new and something interesting there. Are you worried? I mean, one of the things that a lot of people are talking about at the moment is our shifting climate, obviously, and how temperature-wise things are moving and so you do see populations of plants moving around I mean I guess the positive side of that is that new plants get taken to new places yep yep so we're certainly seeing that in Britain now. would you suggest then therefore that botanists are less worried about climate change than other disciplines I, th- I think I think we <laughs> we have to think about 4,000 species uh-huh. uh, in, in our heads so some of those species are going to be plants that will that will adapt and change mm-hmm. and, and, and relish in, in the climate that's changing we've seen bee orchids moving north already sure. pyramidal orchids moving up into southern Scotland where they weren't found before we've got southern marsh orchids in this meadow in front of us you know southern marsh orchids should be further south than yeah. here but they are moving they're, they're moving north so some species will benefit from that other species are definitely going to suffer. So, you know, we've got the Carnethi 
mountains in the background here behind the meadow you know you go up to that highest peak up there and there are some species that are definitely suffering and and going to suffer in in, in the future so those species might disappear so there are always there's always winners and losers yeah. um it's a shifting landscape and whatever happens with the with the climate we're going to get different responses from the vegetation it's always slower so this is the problem that we've got with the vegetation is that you know so we've got some some birds flying overhead there's some butterflies here there's some bees here they can easily move they can they can just skip around and and, and move these plants are literally rooted to the spot so it takes an awful lot more for them to move yeah. the countryside is not permeable to them so moving them around and providing them with that space to move into that's the challenge that we've sure. got as conservationists. To, providing to a green belt, if you will. Yeah, yeah, providing them, you know, and one of the most interesting things, you know, the cows are behind us, vectors, you know, things that move plants around are really essential and we've lost them from the landscape, you know. Sure. So, so, you know, getting those back into the landscape and moving them around from farm to farm, yeah. field to field is a real way that will assist these plants to move around I mean it's probably worth saying that there are other vectors whether it be the I was reading in one of your books about the use of uh, salt on motorways to stop uh, but the byproduct of that has created an environment for species to exist that wouldn't normally exist on roadsides and so yes there's been a vector to move yeah is it a Norwegian? It's it's, it's um, a Danish scovergrass, oh, yeah. a little a tiny little cabbage relative. Sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's moved all over the country Absolutely. because we've been gritting everywhere. Absolutely. And now with our milder winters, are we gritting as much? No, we're not. So does the salt start disappearing from those motorways? Sure, and then destroys and the then habitat. And does then it, does, it, does it disappear again? So uh, yeah. Which could be a good or a bad thing, Which depending on whether or not you like the Danes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we mentioned orchids a bit. You've gone on the record as saying that your fascination with plants started when you were about 12 when you discovered your first orchid. Mm. What was that orchid and was that really the start? Yeah, well, I think for, it, was this, it was the start in my interest in wild plants. So that was, the, that was the first moment for me where up until then I was sort of interested in growing sunflowers and mm-hmm. roses and all these sort of things in the garden and, and plants were just plants. But we lived on the farm down in Hampshire and the River, River Test uh, which was an amazing playground. I was so fortunate to have that. And yeah, on, on, on my, my birthday, found this plant growing in the woodlands that looked nothing like anything else. Uh, early purple orchid growing there. And I was just instantly transfixed. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Big spotted leaves, this enormous spike of purple flowers on this little uh, little shaded bit of woodland by the river. I remember the moment really, really clearly. And, you know, sort of, took mum down to see it didn't know what it was so we went off to the local bookstore bookshop bought this book which was a uh, roger phillips wildflowers and that's what really piques my interest in in wild plants and what wild plants are all about why is that growing there sure. why is that not growing elsewhere yeah what other orchids are there around so i think that piques my interest in in native plants well that's my question what is a wild what is a wildflower mm. Can you answer that? Have you been able to answer that? (laughs) (laughs) It's easy to answer what's a native plant. So a native plant. It's not what I asked. I know, I know. (laughs) So a native plant is a plant that was that was around at the end of the last ice age. So eleven thousand seven hundred years ago. Eleven thousand ten thousand years ago. That's when our native plants were here. As the ice sheets retreated, all these species arrived, basically with that without the help of, of, mm-hmm. of, of humankind. And we've um, still got a land board. We don't have a sea border between us and the mainland Europe. Right. We still have a yeah. Yeah. a bit of land that we could walk yeah. across or cattle could walk across right. or 
seeds could be blown across. That's right. Yeah. Etc. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, we're now talking around 1,700 species as as native plants in mm. in the landscape. Then, of course, man arrived. We started farming. We started moving around. We started bringing plants with us. And particularly as as agriculture arrived from the Mediterranean area, we brought with us the weeds associated with with the crops that we were growing. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's absolutely fascinating. You can go through the archaeological record and pick out precisely the point that poppies started appearing in the the fossil record, the, the, the mm-hmm. archaeological record. It's often rubbish dumps and things like sure. that, you know, midden heaps and things like that. You can start picking up these things. So we know that poppies arrived with the Romans. We know that um, other species arrived before then, other species arrived after then. So there, there's a timeline of species arriving. And these are the what we call the archaeophytes. Sure. So they're they're plants that we introduced, but they're spreading through the wild and and, and they've been here long enough that they're naturalised. They're sort of naturalised. Do you have a soft spot for the time pre-archaeophytes? I or have. Do you think that's a waste of time? No, I mean, if, if, if you're going to be in a time machine and send me back, take me back to the Carboniferous, please, where we <laughs> had towering, towering club mosses the size of trees and, and uh, horsetails and things like that. That's where I really want to go back to, Carboniferous swamps. I think they would be absolutely amazing. My, no, I, I have a soft spot for now, because this, okay. this, this is what I'm living in now. I, I, I don't have experience of what it was like in the 19... 40s, 30s, you know, those, sure. those pre-war years before we started industrializing the landscape and turning it into an agrochemical <laughs> landscape. Yeah. Um, so for me, yeah, my, my, yeah, my soft spot, I, I'd love to see it, obviously, I'd love to go back and see what it was like, but I'm much more interested in what we've got here now and what can we do about it and, and what can we, how can we save it. Okay. So if that's a native plant, at what point does a native plant become a wild plant? So all native plants are wild plants, okay. but also we add into that this wonderful mix of, of non-native species that we've brought to these islands. Sure. So we're under an oak tree, but over there there's a sycamore tree, so that sycamore tree okay. is a non-native species. Again, that actually arrived here with, with the Romans. There's a very um, good uh, episode of Trees of Crowd all about the arrival of the sycamore tree. Oh, is there? Right, yeah. okay, so fantastic. if anyone wants to hear about why it probably shouldn't be called a sycamore, and the fact <laughs> really? that that's a, a fig-leaved uh, prune tree or something. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, ficus <laughs> sycamorus. Anyway. But that's a wild plant. So, so any plant living basically outside of a highly cultivated garden or something like that is a is a wild plant so not so to say that you couldn't have wildflowers growing within a highly cultivated that's where garden. it gets really complicated yeah. yes yes so the boundaries are blurred and the boundaries are mixed and it's it's a really interesting debate at the moment as to as to what is wild and what is not so there's a group of botanists that get very angry if you call a wildflower meadow uh, you know, mixture of cornfield flowers, poppies, cornflowers, uh-huh. um, corn marigolds. If you call that a wildflower meadow, they'll jump on your back and, and beat you to a pulp because you called it a wildflower meadow. So uh, there's a lot of <laughs> well, okay, people so get very, very agitated about these things. So what? I'm so a bit more relaxed. That leads but... us on quite neatly to, to to what we are sitting within and what we are currently looking at. What have you created here, and from what? was it originally yeah so when we moved here in 2015 so Uh seven years ago and at that point it was a pasture that had been horse grazed for quite a few years probably about 20 30 years Um, horse grazed sort of on and off continual grazing year round so it was a very short sward or shortish sward 
not completely devoid of wildflowers. There was there was a bit of um, bird's foot trefoil in here, sure. a little bit of knapweed, things like that. But we wanted, you know, it, oh, this was part of the Coronation Meadows project, Prince Charles's project to celebrate. It was a gift to his mother for the coronation mm-hmm. to create a new meadow, at least one new meadow in every county around Britain. And the idea is that we use natural seeding techniques to do that. So the opportunity arose to to bring seed from another meadow, wildflower meadow, down the valley into here and create a sort of you know a proper wildflower meadow, uh, take it back to, uh, to to what it used to be, increase the number of species in here and have this lovely little system where we've got our cows, got our cattle, mm-hmm. and this provides the hay for them um, and their happy cattle grazing on, the, on on all the species here. So you've you've propagated seed and planted them? You've so put we, plugs in? No, uh, I've put a few plugs sure. in, but not many. So, so natural seeding is a really interesting idea and it was sort of born of, you know, the Wildlife Trust do a lot of this sort of stuff mm-hmm. plant life have, have really um uh, run with it as well in terms of of taking seed from one of those existing fragments there are a few fragments around the country of, of wonderful wildflower meadows dating back to the sort of 1940s lots and lots of species in them and rather than using a commercial mixture of seed sure. which has been selected and, and blended and mixed we use that natural mix and what that does is bring species back quicker uh, you get establishment of a good good wildflower meadow quicker you retain the local character and identity yeah. of the meadow and you end up with more species in the meadow so we we've went we've now got this year uh, 106 different species in this one meadow you counted them all yes i know where everything is <laughs> is there anything that you were surprised to find yeah, I think I think so. We've put in some plug plants, and they haven't really worked. Okay. So that's what's interesting is some of you know it's a bit hit and miss with plug plants, sure. and I'm now going a little bit more towards doing the management properly and, and letting seeing what, happens what seeing what comes come in. Um, the thing that we've got down because we're 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 by the River Conway here overlooking this fabulous view. River Conway there is, is tidal. It's actually salt marsh the other side of those those oh, oak okay. trees down there. There's a little bit of rest harrow has popped up in the meadow. Now rest harrow is not a normal meadow species. Yeah. Um, you'd find it on sand dunes. Yeah, a lovely yeah, yeah. little pink flower, pea-shaped flower. Lovely resinous leaves as well. Uh, lovely smell to them. And that's popped up in the bottom of the, of the meadow. So that gives this meadow a little bit of character. There's yeah. a big patch of that, that down there. Um, rest harrow, by the way, I must say, I always love this story. Uh, the roots are very deep and tangled on rest harrow. And so if you are harrowing a piece of land, you often have to stop the tractor from harrowing to untangle all of the roots. Okay. Of the, so the harrow rests whilst you are untangling that plant from it, hence the name rest harrow. Well, that's wonderful. Isn't it? I love a bit of etymology. <laughs> so, so there's little plants like that that, are, that have popped up. Um, little, little, little rare clover has popped up in here, which I wasn't expecting. But I think for me, yeah, the biggest exciting thing is, is this arrival of these southern marsh orchids. No idea where they've come from. Uh, they started appearing and spreading through, and we've now got about 40 or 50 of them in the meadow. And, and that's one of the most exciting things about these meadows, is seeing how they take on their, their own identity and their own sure. character. One of the things that I've always found interesting is, we, we've sort of touched on it already, is, is how geographically an area becomes unique and what it is. So here you've, mm. got, you've got the tidal river at the bottom, the Conwy, yeah. which brings in the salt, which changes the acidity of the soil. You're also right at the top of North Wales, so I guess it gets pretty cold here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that said, you're also quite but, close to the coast, which no, brings the temperature the, yeah, down. Right. So yeah, yeah. you're close to yeah. some very cold mountain peaks, but yeah. also some fairly warmish 
summers yeah. as well because yeah. of the coastal yeah. winds yeah. and so yeah and every plant has its own its own little requirements its yeah. own character and identity so they will they will either be he- happy here or not and, and you know so you end up with something that's very very custom to and and again it depends on the history of the, yeah. of, the of the site as well so down at the bottom of the meadow uh, where we'll go in a minute that's the thickest area when we started doing this with um with napweed down there loads of napweed was coming up i couldn't work out why why was all the napweed growing down there and not in the rest of the meadow uh-huh. um and then i started looking at the tithe maps and noticed that back in the 1800s that was actually that bottom of the field was a separate field it, uh, okay. it, it had been fenced off so and completely was treated. different management so something yeah. was was different in it. so there's a little echo of that 18th century management still existing in the soil in, in the plants here and that's the sort of thing that i really love about you know what these meadows can tell us and, and, and what the plants are telling us i was reading about the radna lily oh, which i think is fascinating <laughs> how you can probably explain it but it's one of the one of our rarest plants in, that's in, right in yeah Britain. just found on on one hill in radna and uh yeah it's a good friend of mine um uh, ray woods he uh, i've worked with him over, over the years superb botanist absolutely superb uh, and he was interested in in looking at some of the lichens and mosses mm-hmm. on this radna hill which is a very very sort of it's a volcanic rock outcrop in Powys, uh, sort of standing on, on its own, very distinctive hill, and um, very famous for some rare plants that were growing on it. All the botanists went in summer. Why is it so special? <laughs> Ray went, Ray went, because he was interested in the lichens and the mosses, uh-huh. he went in early February, when nobody normally went, sure. and that's when red lily flowers. So he was the first one to spot it because he was the only person that went at that time (laughs) and spotted this little flower, this tiny little yellow star-shaped flower growing there. Amazing. And uh, yeah, why is it there and nowhere else in in, in the country? We think it's part of Avalonia as opposed to Godwanaland. Yeah, absolutely. So like it's the the geology of that unique spot, which means that the whole botanical footprint is different, which then means the pollinators that it draws to it are completely different, which means everything about it is sexy and different. Speaking of sexy and different, um, take me back to the Wessex <laughs> Orchid Society and what it was that took you from being a 12-year-old orchid obsessy and where in the world you went from there. I now realise, looking back, that this 12-year-old that went to the Wessex Orchid Society meetings, my mum and dad were very, very <laughs> patient with me taking me to the Wessex Orchid Society meetings. Every, every meeting, once a month, they would have a sort of table of, of orchids that were in a raffle and um, I strangely won every single... <laughs> I now realise that they probably rigged it because they wanted to encourage this slightly mad 12-year-old to every time go away with a piece of, piece of um, a new, new orchid, orchid. To, to, to try. How many members of the Wessex Orchid Society were there? Was it just you, though? Could that could also possibly be an alternate <laughs> no, reason for that? No, there's there's about 30 or 40, and, uh, yeah, well, I won't... I, yeah, they were, yeah, they were all retired, except, yeah. for, except for Funny me. Funny that. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they, 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 they realised there was somebody here that that needed a bit of encouraging so uh, yeah I always came away with, with an orchid and and from there uh, initially I was going to go into horticulture mm-hmm. that, that was that was my real interest partly because um, of your dad I guess as well yes absolutely yeah yeah I, I it's strange I didn't really want to go into farming per se for some reason I was I was more interested in this amazing flora from around the world you know and that's what growing sure. orchids were you know bringing oh I remember it now clown orchid flowering for the first time Six inch, literally six inch flowers of chestnut and bright orange opening in my living room. And you know, <laughs> just wow. So, you know, horticulture was where I wanted to go, but then, you know, I, I, I sort of did biology at, at, at um, fray levels and things. And people said, Yeah, okay, you know, push yourself, keep going, keep going, keep going. So, I ended up doing 
coming to North Wales, that's when I came to North Wales to do botany at Bangor University. It had a superb botany department sure. in those days, a, a real a real legacy of. Do you think it had a superb botany department because of its unique place in a I think so. Environmental yeah, it, 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 it attracted sense. it attracted the yeah, the best ecologists, yeah. you know, Professor Sagar, uh, oh loads of people, Professor Smith as a as a as a, a bryologist. They were here because of this amazing landscapes. You know, you can go from one of the driest points in Britain on Clandwin Island on mm-hmm. Anglesey up to the wettest point um, on top of uh, Snowdon, you know, within within a few few miles miles of each other and just that range you've got you know a huge amount of acid rock you've got huge limestone outcrops and it's just that that generates this amazing diversity and it still enthralls me to this day so yeah i was out looking <laughs> for uh, forked spleen work the other day for a project that i'm working with the uh, species recovery trust and uh yeah there's a little mine hidden up in the mountains just uh-huh. over there and there are hundreds of this incredibly rare it's an incredibly rare fern yeah they're the size of cabbages up there it's just amazing just amazing so yeah i, I love it up here yeah um what was your phd in so i i have this fascination with with plant form how are they built? How are they constructed? So their anatomy. So I, I, I had a superb supervisor at, at university, Dr. Adrian Bell, mm-hmm. who has written, it's still available, the seminal sort of work on, on plant morphology. And it just fascinated me that the, I think it's to do with the diversity of species, you know, how, how one plant's leaf can, can look like this and another plant's leaf look completely different, how they're constructed. So, so I, I specialised in plant morphology and plant architecture and how plants actually grow. Mm-hmm. And I love this idea that the, the scale of time is so different. We're sat under this oak tree now, but um, the way that it grows and the pattern of those shoots mm-hmm. and those branches stems, literally stems back to its youth. And you can, tr- you can trace and, and, and see that pattern of growth through time. If we, were, if, we were, if we speeded up time, this would be such an exciting thing to sit under and watch grow because it would be shooting off in different directions and most importantly, interacting with its neighbors. Uh-huh. And that's the really interesting thing. How's that canopy interacting with its neighbors? And they actually, they actually fight, they actually, you know, it's sort of like corals. I don't know if you've sure. seen these corals competing on a coral reef growing. It's the same with trees. So Adrian Bell specialised in, in, in that sort of research, which was a very new area of research. And most of that is done in tropical forests because that's where the real energy is in yeah, terms of plant growth. It's quicker, more explosive growth. That's right. And you've got more even environment. Uh, so things are interacting with each other uh, on an equal footing. And um, yeah, there was a wonderful project to uh, go out to the uh, rainforests of the Cameroon. It's almost like that was going to be my next question. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that's where you're going. <laughs> so uh, Adrian was interested in tropical in these tropical trees canopies, how they interact with each other. Uh-huh. How do you get up to the tropical tree canopy? Well, the best way they found was to fly a hot air balloon over the top and land on top of these on top of the ca- canopy. And that then, sounds incredibly dangerous. Yeah, it was. I was the only person. <laughs> I actually managed to fall out of the balloon. The, uh, the doctor in the camp was so excited because I came back from my part of the expedition with blood pouring down my face. <laughs> Hooray, I've got a casualty. That's brilliant. <laughs> so he took, yes. I hung on to a tree as the balloon moved. That's a, that's oh, no, a, no, 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 no. Stay no. on the moving thing. Don't stay on the static <laughs> I thing. Was, I was more interested in the plant than staying alive. <laughs> so uh, thankfully I was attached on the rope. How uh, tall were those trees? They were 50 metres. So uh, yeah. yeah, that was quite tall. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But it was, it was the most amazing balloon. They were actually, it was actually built in Oswestry, 
uh, even though it was afraid, the University of Montpellier was 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 um, pioneering this work uh, and flying it and going out to different different rainforests around the world. French Guiana, we went to Cameroon, and they would fly this dirigible with a with a. Oh, so you could you so could, could manoeuvre yeah, it. Okay. You could actually manoeuvre it. It had a Rolls Royce engine fan on the back. I was thinking a botanist in a normal hot air balloon, just going. Well, we'll and look. I guess we'll look at that one today. Or no, no, no hang on, hang on. We'll go over here. Exactly. Yes, we'll definitely go. That's over exactly. Here. That's exactly how it happened. And you can imagine these sort of you know <laughs> sort of. French sort of how do I explain everyone's wearing a piss helmet in my imagination no 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 they're they're, they're French with a big moustache that's that's curled around um sort of that flair of of sort of you know I don't know exploring this uncharted territory and just yes let's exactly what you said let's go over there let's go to this one let's go to that tree over there but you could literally fly into these trees then they drop this this uh sort of a raft as they called it on top of the canopy and you could actually then drop ropes down to the ground and come back up and down and examine this uh, rainforest canopy and the insect and, life must have been well, amazing one as of well. the best i was gonna say the best nights of my life was was spent sleeping on top of the, a rainforest canopy and the noises and the sounds that you hear through the night are just astonishing and uh, the insects were just mind-blowing and you know part of the part of the thing when i grabbed onto this plant mm-hmm. so, so most of these tropical rainforest trees are protected by ants their morphology they produce structures that these ants can live in so that the ants then go out and protect the tree from predators sure. but of course if you grab onto a tree whilst you're flying through it on a dirigible hot air balloon you're a predator so they attack you <laughs> and we're talking <laughs> big cameroonian ants yes Yes, ones that can strip flesh. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was uh, that was an exciting, exciting trip. You're yeah. the first person I've ever met who slept on the canopy of a of a rainforest. It was um, it was utterly unforgettable. Yeah, I I, it, I I can picture it now, and just the sounds and the smells, and just yeah, you had no idea what was out there. There were there were snakes. There were there were apes there were monkeys there was all there were bats there was all this life there pulsing and vibrating around you and it was just amazing do you miss that yeah okay because <laughs> <laughs> you, you yeah yeah i've been i've lucky enough to gone back to the tropics a couple of times since then uh-huh. uh, not in a research capacity in in, in, a, in a and there's nothing like it there's nothing like it there's nothing like the vibrancy and the thrill tropical rainforests have an have an energy to them that that nothing else does and it's just it's just fantastic but of course all the life is up on the top yeah. the, you know down below 50 meters on the forest floor it's dark and, and and silent so you want to be up there where the action is on on, on the top uh, so, same with the british forest you know yeah all purple hair street butterflies yeah, and the yeah, like yeah, yeah you can yeah, only see those if you're yeah, up top that's right yeah, yeah yeah so so i view british forests as sort of uh, a much more gentler sort of experience and a much more um, so why did you settle why did you stay in wales and why did you move to plant life and why did you decide to commit to great british and irish fauna uh, flora and i i was very 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 lucky when i when i left university we were actually doing some traveling and um as i left the airport i put in an application to the botanical society of the british isles mm-hmm. for a unique opportunity to study the the flora of britain and the first map had been done of, of Britain. The first atlas of, of British plants had been done back in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was the year 2000, or, or coming up for the year 2000. Uh, we would publish a new atlas that would that would map all plants of Britain and Ireland and look back at that atlas from the 60s and, compare and work the state out of, what the change was yeah. and what's driving the change, how much change had there been.
And if you would like to find out just how much change there had been, you'll have to tune in next week for part two. A preemptive thank you to Trevor and to his micro herd of Highland cows. But yes, to hear about the discoveries made through comparing the original 1962 atlas to Trevor's 2002 atlas, and indeed to hear a few insights into what conclusions may be drawn from the upcoming 2023 atlas, you will have to tune in again in seven days' time. Unless, of course, you subscribe to us on Patreon, in which case it's waiting for you already. Thank you for your continued support. So, until next week, bye-bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 